On June 22, 1954, 16-year-old Pauline Parker and her best friend, 15-year-old Juliette Hume, murdered Pauline's mother to try to avoid being separated. The story of their friendship and rich fantasy life was brought to the screen in 1994's Heavenly Creatures, directed and co-written by Peter Jackson. This is based on a true crime. I'm Chelsea, and I love true crime. And I'm David, and I love horror movies. And uh, welcome to part two of our anniversary special. Yes, yes. one year. One year. Uh, this is an episode, well, this is a movie that's near and dear to my heart. In fact, so near and dear to my heart that this was actually our first episode. Our first episode was on Heavenly Creatures. It was, yes. And it was not a great episode. It had some sound issues. It had some uh, growing, you know, it's not even growing pains. It was our first episode. But we, we kind of snuck in and pulled it down uh, quite a few months ago. And since then, the, the people have been clamoring for, well, they've just been asking, what was your first episode? And we're like, well, <laughs> funny story, true story. Yeah. Uh, well, true story, actually, yes. Yes. Not so funny story. No, not so funny story. Uh, I pulled it down because we got some some comments that uh, were not very favorable about oh, no, that I particular the, episode. I meant, the, I meant the case. Oh, the case. <laughs> <laughs> you know, true story. <laughs> it is. It, oh, I get it now. So we're going to laugh through the whole episode. Yes, in honor yes. of our first episode where I know I laughed a lot. And I laughed a lot too. But before we get started... I wanted to thank our new reviewers, uh, C. Misich and Jules D. Baker. Uh, so the C. Misich is actually Courtney, who's one of the hosts of the Cult of Domesticity podcast, which is excellent. Go check it out. And uh, Jules is actually, she's a new, I believe it's the same one, our new Patreon supporter and new member of our Facebook group, which we've had so much fun. I think Facebook group has been kind of my link to the podcast in these crazy few weeks since moving. So it's nice to uh, to keep in touch with, with everyone. And, and we'll be we'll be back in the swing of things very soon yes yeah because we just kind of finished uh week three here in yeah. mexico so uh in addition to to our episode on heavenly creatures which i hope you all enjoy please do stay tuned after the show because we have a few special messages from some of our pod friends uh they wanted to share with all of you guys some of their favorite movies based on a true crime so yeah thank you guys. So it's, yeah it's really cool i think you're gonna enjoy it and we want to say thank you to all of our pod friends who yeah. jumped in and participated yes and our listeners also yes. thank you guys so much uh here's to another awesome year ahead uh we have a whole slew of movies that we're covering that we're working out the schedule for now but it, it should be good yeah. it should leprechaun here we come oh wait <laughs> <laughs> without further ado shall we jump into the uh parker whom case let's do it Juliet Marion Hume was born October 28, 1938, in Blackheath, London. Uh, her father, Dr. Henry Rainsford Hume, was a physicist, which, what else are you going to be with a name like that? Yes. Uh, and her mother was Hilda Hume. She was a pretty sickly child. She actually spent a lot of time away from home starting at a very young age. And in 1946, she was diagnosed with tuberculosis and she was sent to live with a family in the Bahamas for 13 months in hopes that a warmer climate would improve her health. The following year, in 1946, her father took a position as rector of Canterbury University College in New Zealand. She moved to New Zealand as well, although she did not stay with her family initially. In 1947, she was actually sent to the Bay of Islands to stay with another family. Uh, in 1948, she was sent to North Island, New Zealand. And then in 1949, she was sent away to a private boarding school in Hastings, New Zealand. So she didn't actually rejoin her family until 1952. Uh, she was 13 at the time. And this is when she began attending the Christchurch Girls High School. And this was where, you know, she would start this infamous friendship with Pauline Parker. Pauline Yvonne Parker was born on May 26th of 1938. She was the third child of Honora Parker and Herbert Reaper. Her parents were together for two decades, but they were never actually married. 
actually her dad had been married and had a different family and kind of ran off with Honora and I guess never officially even got a divorce. So ah, interesting. Kind, kind of weird. Uh, yeah. It wasn't revealed that they weren't married actually until the police investigation. So Honora and Pauline had both been using the last name Reaper during all this time, but then they kind of became known in the history books as the Parkers because that was uh, Honora's maiden name. So in 1943, when Pauline was five years old, she contracted osteomyelitis and she was hospitalized for nine months. Um, it was a bone infection and it was extremely painful. She was near death at one point. And two years after that, she had to undergo a second painful operation to drain this infection from her leg. And as a result of this, she had a permanent handicap, which kept her from engaging in physical education and sports. So that's actually how Pauline and Juliet kind of became close. So Pauline was very quiet in school. Juliet was very outgoing and popular, but they both had to sit out at their gym classes and they kind of got to talking and sort of developed this friendship. Well, when the girls met, they were both bright students without any behavioral problems to speak of. In fact, early on, their friendship was totally normal. After meeting Juliet, Pauline said to her mother, quote, I've met someone at last who has a will as strong as my own. All of this changed, according to Pauline herself, after they took a bike ride together in August of 1952. Pauline and Juliet rode their bikes around the country, removed their outer clothing, and ran amongst the bushes. They were so excited by the experience that when they went home, they left their clothes behind. Reflecting on this incident, Pauline said that previously they had just been friends, but after this, there was an indissoluble bond between them. Their physical closeness at school was also disapproved of and commented upon as early as mid-1952. It was also after this incident that they began to develop their rich fantasy life. Dr. Reginald Medlicott, the principal psychiatric consultant slash witness for the defense at the girls' trial, said, quote, By the end of 1952, the two had developed their own fictional characters, acting them out and referring to them as their families. Increasingly, their writings became a morbid preoccupation with evil. It was also around this time, New Year's of 1953, that Pauline began keeping her infamous diary, which she would keep up until the day of the murder. The girls would sneak out at night and stay up until the early hours of the morning, acting out the fictional characters they had created. There was also one special group, which they called the, quote, saints, who were not fictional, but rather celebrities which the girls had crushes on. These saints were referred to as he, him, it, and so on. And Pauline's diary had a key in the front for the saints' nicknames, indicating that Mario Lanza was poor Mario equals he, James Mason, the James, was him, Harry Lime, who was Harry III, was it, Mel Ferrer, the angry man, was this and they, Sue Bujeline, who was the last one, was that, and Guy Ralph was King John, his. So it was April of 1953 when the uh, next big kind of event happened that was you know, shaping these girls' friendship and their fantasy life. And this became known as the Port Levy Revelation. So on April 3rd, Pauline wrote in her diary, quote, Today, Juliet and I found the key to the fourth world. We realize now that we have had it in our possession for about six months, but we only realized it on the day of the death of Christ. We saw a gateway through the clouds. We sat on the edge of the path and looked down the hill over the bay. The island looked beautiful. The sea was blue. Everything was full of peace and bliss. We then realized we had the key. We now know that we are not genii as we thought. We have an extra part of our brain which can appreciate the fourth world. Only about 10 people have it. When we die, we will go to the fourth world. But meanwhile, on two days every year, we may use the key and look into that beautiful world, which we have been lucky enough to be allowed to know of on this day of finding the key to the way through the clouds. So their discovery of the fourth world, I think, reveals two aspects of the girls' personalities, which maybe shed some light on their further actions. The first is this sense of grandiosity that they seem to have. They say that there are two people out of only 10 in the whole world who can access this magical place. And about this, Dr. Medlicott said that the girls, quote, went into adolescence already strongly narcissistic and each acted on the other as a resonator, increasing the pitch of their narcissism. You know, I think it's kind of introducing that idea of 
uh, if you want to call something like a folly ado. So, you know, these two people who separately might have some issues, you know, are able to kind of resonate off of each other and it, it grows, you know, into what it eventually became, which was something dangerous. Yeah. Uh, so the other aspect is that after this experience, this seeing and accessing of the fourth world, there's a pretty significant change in Pauline's writing. Her characters began to get darker and more aggressive and the theme of murder was frequently discussed. In one passage, a female character says, quote, I don't kill people. I thought you might like to know since you asked me some time ago. My father hasn't killed anyone for quite a while. I would like to kill someone sometimes because I think it is an experience that is necessary to life. In May of 1953, the girls were separated for the first time by Juliet's quarantine in a sanatorium after contracting tuberculosis. She remained there until September of 1953, while her parents traveled temporarily out of the country on a pre-planned trip. In later years, Juliet commented that she felt an extreme debt of gratitude and obligation to Pauline Parker because of Pauline's unwavering support and companionship during this, quote, dark and lonely time. Juliet referred to Pauline's friendship as a lifeline during her confinement at the sanatorium. It was also during Juliet's confinement that Parker began a relationship with a boy called Nicholas in her diary. Sometime in July of 1953, Pauline's father caught him in her bed and kicked him out. The relationship continued though, and in October, she lost her virginity to him according to her diary. However, on October 28th, Juliet's birthday, she wrote in her diary, quote, told Nicholas this evening that I was no longer very much in love with him because of my imaginary characters. During the latter part of 1953, Pauline went through a number of severe mood swings, according to her diary. On November 2nd, she wrote, quote, Today, I felt thoroughly, utterly, and completely depressed. I was in one of those moods in which committing suicide sounds heavenly. At the urging of Dr. Hume, uh, Honora took her daughter to be examined by Dr. Bennett in December of 1953, and Pauline was diagnosed to be a homosexual, which was at the time considered a serious mental illness. Pauline wrote about this doctor's appointment on December the 14th, saying, quote, Mother carted me off to see a doctor after work, which was a half-witted imbecile thing to do, especially as I feel perfectly well. The doctor was a bloody fool. I felt very tense, and then we saw Pandora and the Flying Dutchman. It is the most perfect story I've ever known. The best picture, easily, that I've ever seen. Pandora is the most beautiful female imaginable, and him is far too wonderful to attempt to describe. I feel depressed and will probably cry tonight feels so like typically teenage girl the kind of mood swings and I don't know it must be a maybe a symptom of the times but I feel like the way their friendship is described and reading about it in her diary it doesn't really feel that out of sorts or out of line with you know some friendships I had when I was like in elementary school and middle school I think there's a certain closeness <laughs> that you develop I think especially among female friends where it's you know, come home from school and like talk on the phone with them for hours and hours and hours and hours it's like I don't think there's anyone I wanted to talk to that much anymore, <laughs> except for you. Aww, yeah. Yeah. Well, after this, this diagnosis of uh, homosexuality, Honora forbade Pauline from seeing Juliet over the holidays. On the 20th of December, Pauline wrote, quote, Mother woke me this morning and started lecturing me before I was properly awake, which I thought was somewhat unfair. She has brought up the worst possible threat now. She said that if my health did not improve, I could never see the Humes again. The thought is too dreadful. Life would be unbearable without Deborah. I rang Deborah and told her the threat. I wish I could die. That is not an idle or temporary impulse. I have decided over the last two or three weeks that it would be the best thing that could happen altogether. The thought of death is not fearsome. So this is the first instance in the diary of Pauline calling Juliet Deborah. A short time before this entry, the girls decided that they should call each other Gina and Deborah, and those were two characters in the stories that they would write. So after this, Pauline was forbidden to see Juliet until January 26th. On New Year's Day, Pauline wrote in her diary, quote, My New Year's resolution is a far more selfish one than last year, so there is more probability of my keeping it. It is to make my motto, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may be dead. Right on. Yep, just like the Dave Matthews Band song. <laughs> yep. Well, during the time that the two girls were separated, the Hume household was crumbling following the arrival of Walter Perry. Walter Perry met Hilda in August of 1953 when she was acting as a marriage counselor and he was a client going through a divorce. They fell in love and their budding relationship was both known to and accepted by Henry Hume. Around Christmas of 1953, Walter Perry moved into a semi 
semi-private flat at the Im Homestead to live with the Humes. This arrangement generated significant gossip and social pressure, which precipitated the breakup of Hilda and Henry Hume's marriage. The affair coincided with the forced resignation of Henry Hume from his job. Henry and Hilda Hume made plans to divorce, and Hilda Hume and Walter Perry decided to start a new life together alone. Henry would get custody of Juliet and plan to leave New Zealand with her, dropping her off with relatives in South Africa before continuing back to England. It seemed that Onora may have also remarked on Hilda's unusual relationship, which further contributed to tension between herself and her daughter. On February the 13th, Pauline wrote in her diary, quote, This afternoon, Mother told me I could not go out to Ilham again until I was eight stone and more cheerful. As I am now seven stone, there is little hope. Also, one cannot help recalling that she was the same over Nicholas. She said I could not see him again until my behavior approved, and when it did, she concluded it was not having his influence that caused it. She is most unreasonable. I also overheard her making insulting remarks about Mrs. Hume while I was ringing this afternoon. I was livid. I am very glad because the Humes sympathize with me, and it is nice to feel that adults realize what mother is. Dr. Hume is going to do something about it, I think. Why could not mother die? Dozens of people are dying all the time. Thousands. So why not mother and father too? Life is very hard. I think that's the first instance in the diary also where the idea is introduced, which you'll see a lot more of that idea in the diary later on. But she did not want to be separated from Juliet, and it seemed that Juliet would be leaving soon. And what was standing in her way? It was clearly her evil mother. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Well, Pauline had formed a close relationship with Hilda Hume before the family upheaval. And Pauline believed that Hilda and Henry would support her desire to leave her family and join theirs the family breakup however changed all that and pauline and juliet started to come up with these sort of escape schemes on february 28th pauline mentions a plan for the first time in her diary quote deborah and i started discussing our quest for him we have now decided to hurry things up terrifically in fact to start now we had a marvelous time planning the life and the flight and how we will obtain all the money and what we will do Uh, So their plan was to travel to New York together, where they would find someone to publish their books, and then they would go to Hollywood and become actresses. So every teenage girl's plan, right? Yeah, sounds fun. Yeah. But, you know, in order to accomplish this, they needed money. And they came up with what everyone would do if they need money, right? Blackmail. So on April 23rd, Pauline wrote in her diary that on the previous night, Juliet caught Walter Perry in bed with her mother. And Juliet said that she told her mother and Walter about their plan to leave for America and, you know, that they should give her money so that she, you know, wouldn't tell her father, which her father already knew. So it didn't really matter at that point. But uh, Walter still gave her a hundred pounds to buy permits. And actually her mother and Walter say that this was not the case or that I guess they were in bed, but they weren't doing anything. It was like she was bringing him a cup of tea in his his bedroom in the flat above Ilum or whatever. So. Is that what they call yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, definitely a euphemism. So on the following day, April 25th, Pauline went to Ilum and the girls spoke with Dr. Hume about their plan. She wrote in her diary, quote, he was both hope-giving and depressing. We talked for a long time and then Deborah and I were near tears by the time it was over. The outcome was somewhat vague. What is to be the future now? We may all be going to South Africa and Italy and dozens of other places or not at all. We none of us know where we are and a good deal depends on chance she ends the entry with quote but one thing deborah and i are sticking together through everything we sink or swim together so i think it's kind of interesting that you know she she and juliet would sit down with dr hume and talk and dr hume didn't just immediately you know shut her down especially because he's the one that you know suggested that her mother take her to a doctor so he was clearly concerned about the relationship and one theory is that you know he didn't want to be the bad guy and he knew that pauline's mother would never let her go so you know maybe he had kind of introduced the idea of you know it's up to your mother which <laughs> yeah. uh, ask yeah. your mom yep <laughs> although Juliet's mother stated that it was made clear that Pauline would not be going with them the girls were convinced that if Pauline could overcome her parents opposition she could leave with Juliet it was just three days after the conversation with Dr. Hume on April the 28th that the idea appears to have struck Pauline for the first time she wrote on that day, quote, Life seems so much not worth living and death such an easy way out. Anger against mother boiled up inside me, as it is she who is one of the main obstacles in my path. Suddenly, a means of ridding myself of this obstacle occurred to me. 
If she were to die, I spent the evening writing and managed to finish my chapter. During the next three months, the girls spent an increasing amount of time together, with Pauline staying at Juliet's home frequently over the weekends. Every time they would finish writing one book, they immediately started another. Pauline wrote that they often took long baths together and spent hours together in Juliet's bed, unknowns to her parents. Around this time, Onora removed her daughter from high school and enrolled her at Digby's Commercial College instead. She said that Pauline had completely lost interest in her studies due to her focus on writing and that she had fallen behind in her schoolwork, although there was no indication of this in her school record. According to evidence presented at the trial, Onora was pleased that the relationship between the girls would be broken up when she learned that Dr. Hume was leaving the country with Juliet on July the 3rd. Just 12 days before the Hume household was due to disintegrate completely, Pauline murdered her mother with Juliet's assistance on Tuesday, July 22nd, 1954. Although the idea first appeared in her diary in April, she apparently did not discuss it with Juliet until June 19th. Pauline wrote, quote, We practically finished our books today, and our main idea for the day was to moiter mother. This notion is not a new one, but this time it is a definite plan which we intend to carry out. We have worked it out carefully and are both thrilled by the idea. Naturally, we feel a trifle nervous, but the pleasure of anticipation is great. I shall not write the plan down here, as I shall write it up when we carry it out, I hope. On June 20th, she wrote, I tidied the room and messed about a little. Afterwards, we discussed our plans for moitering mother and made them a little clearer. Peculiarly, I have no qualms of conscience, or is it peculiar? We are so mad. And she did spell out moiter. That's not me. You don't just pronounce it that way? I don't just pronounce it that way. No, it's not a New Jersey thing. You're like, Uh, yeah, what's up, Doc? We're going to moiter some people. Yep. Well, on June 21st, the day before the murder, she wrote, quote, I rose late and helped mother vigorously this morning. Deborah rang and we decided to use a rock and a stocking rather than a sandbag. We discussed the moiter fully. I feel very keyed up as though I were planning a surprise party. Mother has fallen in with everything beautifully and the happy event is to take place tomorrow afternoon. So next time I write in this diary, mother will be dead. How odd yet how pleasing. And that's uh, what's m- morbidly upbeat or something. I don't know. That's uh, a little Just, gruesome, but... Yeah. yeah. So finally, on June 22nd, she wrote at the top of the entry, the day of the happy event. And she wrote, I am writing a little of this up the morning before the death. I feel very excited. And the night before Christmas-ish last night, I did not have pleasant dreams, though. I'm about to rise. I thought our wedding was the day of the happy event. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like uh, in terms of the day that you're planning to murder your mother, probably Christmas and surprise party are two two phrases that shouldn't come up. Yeah, well, it's interesting that it's not code. She's not trying to hide her plans by using these alternate like titles for the day. Yeah, it's, it's like I was just planning her a surprise party. I don't know what happened. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It is interesting these cases where people keep such details in diaries. I feel like you don't really see that nowadays anymore. I don't know if just not as many people carry diaries, or maybe murderers got a little bit smarter yeah. about it. Yeah, if she had a Facebook, yeah. maybe it was like a picture of the rock in the sack or whatever. That's what it feels like the equivalent of like posting it on Facebook or Live Journal or something. Just yeah, way too easy easily found well that morning juliet collected a broken brick from her home and brought it to pauline's house pauline put it into a stocking and carried it in a shoulder bag juliet carried a pink stone with her which she had taken from a brooch and the plan was for juliet to drop the stone and when her mother stooped to pick it up pauline would hit her with the brick in the stocking which would deliver one fatal blow which they could claim was the result of her falling and striking her head after lunch honora Pauline and Juliet traveled to Victoria Park and got drinks at the tea kiosk. At 3.05, they finished the tea and headed into the park. They walked for about 15 minutes and crossed a wooden bridge where Juliet dropped the stone. Pauline pointed out the stone to her mother, who moved to pick it up. Rather than taking one blow, it took 45, with Juliet joining in on the attack. At 3.30, the girls returned to the tea kiosk, covered in blood, hysterical, screaming that Honora was hurt and crying for help. Kenneth Ritchie, a caretaker at the park, was first on the scene along with his assistant, Eric McElroy, and they could tell immediately that it was not an accident because they saw the half-brick lying just 15 inches from her. Seriously, these girls are the worst criminals ever. Yeah, yeah. Just that, toss uh, them into the woods. I know, 15 inches, that's like really, really close. Well, by 8 p.m. that night, Pauline confessed to the crime when she was interrogated alone at Ilum. She tried to exonerate Juliet, hoping that she would escape punishment. And there are also rumors that 
That night at Ilum, the family destroyed evidence, not only burning Juliet's diary and writings, but they removed bricks. However, police found Pauline's diary, and the next afternoon, they interrogated Juliet again when she finally confessed to her role in the murder. Prior to trial, both girls were imprisoned in Paparua Prison, where they listened to classical music, took long walks together, and wrote voluminously. On July 16th, they were committed for trial at a sensational inquest, where extracts from Pauline's diary were read, beginning worldwide publicity and interest in this case. The trial began on August 23rd of 1954. The girls pled not guilty by reasons of insanity. Testifying for the defense, Dr. Medlicott interviewed the girls for a total of only seven hours each and diagnosed them with paranoia of the exalted type, a variety of schizophrenia. The prosecution called three expert witnesses who also interviewed the girls, Dr. Stallworthy, Dr. Seville, and Dr. Hunter. They all testified that Pauline and Juliet were legally sane. On August the 28th, during the closing address, Crown Prosecutor Alan Brown famously stated, quote, This was a coldly, callously planned and carefully committed murder by two precocious and dirty-minded girls. They are not incurably insane, but incurably bad. The jury retired for two hours and 15 minutes before returning a verdict. The girls were found legally sane and convicted of the murder of Honora Parker. So Pauline and Juliet were sentenced to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure in separate institutions. Pauline was moved from Paparoa Prison to Arohada Women's Reformatory, a borstal north of Wellington, where she spent most of her incarceration. Juliet was flown to Auckland Prison to the Women's Wing, where she was kept in solitary confinement for the first three months. She was set there rather than to a lower security borstal because she was considered to be the more dominant personality of the two of them and also the leader you know despite the fact that it does appear according to the diaries that you know Pauline planned the murder and Juliet really knew about it at the last minute on December 12th of 1954 Pauline tried to smuggle a letter to Juliet and this was the last reported instance of the girls trying to contact one another the last time they actually ended up seeing each other was at the trial oh that's that's sad yeah well maybe for the best though yeah, I mean, yes. the, the death of the mother, of course, was very sad. It just, yeah. you know. In December of 1959, the New Zealand Secretary of State for Justice announced that the two girls, now 21, had been released from prison and given new identities and that neither girl knew where the other was living. The girls served only five years for their crime. In 1995, renewed interest in the case based on the release of the movie Heavenly Creatures unmasked successful Victorian mystery writer Anne Perry as Juliet Hume. She had moved to Scotland to be near her mother and she took the surname Perry from Walter Perry, who had at that point been married to Hilda. She spoke publicly about the case on a number of occasions since then. Pauline Parker had also been tracked down and it was found that she was living in England. So actually not too far away from from Anne Perry. She had changed her name to Hillary Nathan. And according to her sister, Wendy, she is now a devout Catholic who lives a life of solitude. While Pauline or Hillary has not given any interviews on this case, her sister said that Pauline has expressed strong remorse for killing her mother. Wow. Yeah, that's that's pretty incredible. Yeah. And it's it's interesting. You know, the, the girls had dreamed of writing stories and one of them actually, I guess, achieved that. You know, she's very successful, although it is pretty creepy to, you know, see some passages that she's written now in her fiction novels that are about murders and blunt force trauma to the head. And it's uh, I just I feel like I'd be kind of creeped out reading that, knowing what she took part in even though they were both young i think that you know one thing i wanted to talk about was maybe the fairness of their sentence and i think that someone of that age 16 15 even the united states yes you can be tried as an adult but you no know, there are people who who don't and they do get released after serving a short time for what is a pre-planned murder yeah well it's interesting in that you know after they they were given the sentence and they didn't see each other they served five years and then just completely quiet until sort of their identities are unveiled i guess due in part to the film helping the creatures yeah yeah it's so that's it, what 35 years something like that it's or, um i don't know if it's five years of their crime whenever they got out would it have been like the yeah, it been like 60s and... yeah early 60s yeah yeah it, it is pretty crazy it's interesting that no one would have thought to try to track them down but i also feel like this was an age before the internet where it actually would have been pretty hard they were released with new identities for their own protection and i think that you know without something like this big 
movie to renew interest probably no one bothered even though it's called the crime of the century many things are called the, i feel like we, this is like the third case we've covered that's the crime of the century it's only been one century lots of crimes of the that century of the 20th century yeah have there been any so far in this uh 20 21st century Ooh, maybe that should be a question for our listeners what do you think has been the crime of the 21st century so far yes we've had 18 short years so uh what is it let us know so my other discussion point, I kind of brought this up a little bit as we were discussing it, but um, this idea of oh, these two girls maybe separately not committing a crime like this, but together having this kind of folly ado or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, it's maybe similar to something like Leopold and Loeb, which we discussed in our Murder by Numbers episode, or even in Cold Blood, you know, two people who, you know, separately maybe even might have been criminals, but this one particular crime, you know, would it have existed without the two of them? And for me, at least in this case, it, it seems like it really was because of this very intense friendship. And the, the threat of them being separated, right? I mean, it, it seems like the, the weight of the blame on her mother was sort of the driving, the driving factor. Yes, which to me, the mother is not at fault at all, in my opinion. You know, do I think she overreacted to the closeness of their relationship? Yes. Would any mother out there let their 16-year-old move to South Africa with their 15-year-old friend just because? No. That's growing crazy. Up, yeah, growing up, I had, you know, you, you have lots of friends, I think, during one's youth that, for whatever reason, classmates, they, they move. And that's terrible and it's painful, but we get through it. But sometimes I guess there there are ways to, to maybe try to stop that from happening and they aren't always the, the healthiest. Yeah, yeah. And it's I feel like it's so easy to keep in touch with people nowadays. And it would have been harder back then. And it could feel like you know, your best friend moving to another country is kind of the end of everything. But, you know, I think it's, it's really unfortunate. And it does seem like she grew up and has a lot of regret about it it now so it's it's sad yep definitely teenagers are crazy don't trust them (laughs) yeah Yeah. oh my goodness yeah and watch out when somebody's like hey look at that pretty jewel down on the trail over there why don't you stoop down and pick it up whack Uh, violent crime terrible ending yeah it really sucks so i don't have kids yeah yep we just have kitties that can bite us they can bite us but they can't lift up a half of a brick above my head <laughs> yeah they push things off the they top of try. the refrigerator onto yeah. Us, but yeah yeah so this is interesting in that like we talked about peter jackson ended up directing the film of this case and i think not surprisingly it follows a lot of the beats of what happened in real life so we are going to dive into the film heavenly creatures here in just a second so sit tight we'll be right back they were two young girls <laughs> living in a world of imagination. I'm going to the fourth world. It's an absolute paradise of music, art, and pure enjoyment. What they had was friendship. What a disgrace you are. Your mother is rather a miserable woman. What they needed was freedom. Do you like your mother? No. What they shared was a secret. Your daughter's in behaving in a rather disturbed manner. What's she done? I think I'm going crazy. I'm sure it's perfectly innocent. The crime that shocked the nation. People die every day. Only the best people fight against all obstacles in pursuit of happiness. Paul thought it up. Aren't you clever? We're not going to be separated. I hate you! She's uncontrollable. Based on a true story. It's all frightfully romantic. Heavenly Creatures. When circumstances bring together two bright and highly imaginative teenage schoolgirls, they quickly form an unwavering bond, creating a fantasy world that only they can share. But soon their parents, disturbed by the intensity of their friendship, threaten to keep them apart. In retaliation, the girls vow to stay together, devising a secret plan that leads to shocking consequences. This highly acclaimed true-life story of the shocking crime stunned a nation. Uh, Yes, we are talking about Heavenly Creatures, the 1994 movie directed by Peter Jackson, written by Fran Walsh and Peter Jackson himself. The dream uh, team? 
Yes, yeah. the Dream Team. Well, f- for a while anyway. You know, they have been partners for a very long time and uh, yeah, have written a bunch of the, bunch of the movies that Peter Jackson has directed over the years. When you think of Peter Jackson, what's the first movie that comes to mind, Chelsea? Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. Well, Lord of the Rings trilogy. Absolutely. That was the first thing that brought him on my radar. I know that you saw many of his earlier movies that are a little bit more, well, I wouldn't say they're more up your alley since you're also a dork like me. I think the Lord of the Ring trilogy is an amazing achievement in filmmaking. Sadly, they were followed up with the Hobbit trilogy, which is um, not so good. Yes, not so good. But he seems aware of it. He does. He does. But gosh, uh, Heavenly Creatures, I feel like it really turned his career on its head and kind of set him off in a a bit of a different direction because at the time he was known as a splatstick director. Um, He was, his films were horror movies made in New Zealand on a shoestring budget. They were gory and gross. Um, And awesome. Yeah. So we've got, uh, what do we got? Bad Taste which is an alien invasion movie, which is really great. I love it. It's really gross. I've not seen that one, but well, I, I have seen Brain Dead, Dead Alive. Yeah, yeah. Brain Dead Alive. Brain Dead there. Yeah, most of the world, I think, knows it as Brain Dead, but in the United States, it was Dead Alive. So uh, that one's great. Yeah. Yeah, that's real bloody, but really, really entertaining. One of the best lines in a movie ever. I kick ass for the Lord. <laughs> yes. And then Meet the Feebles, the weird puppet sex movie, which is like a film noir. Just, it's really wild. They did puppet sex before Team America did puppet sex. They did, yeah. yeah. They definitely did. Um, There's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> except maybe puppet sex when that movie came out. Yeah, yeah. I can say if you're into horror or fantasy, definitely Dead Alive, aka Brain Dead. Definitely bad taste. I cannot necessarily vouch for Meet the Feebles. It's an acquired taste, I believe. It's uh what, what how I'll uh, how well, I'll stick with that but yeah so this is his uh, sort of what's the right word prestige picture I feel because it won the Silver Lion which it uh, was awarded at the 51st Venice International Film Festival um, it was also like in just about every film critics top films of the year list uh, of that year and it was nominated for an Academy Award for best original screenplay. So big kudos to Fran Walsh and Peter Jackson for that. Yeah. D- Dead Alive wasn't nominated for Best Screenplay? I don't think so. Best Picture? Yeah, it should have been. Yeah, yep. It should have won, really. I think it Best Costume? <laughs> yes. For that little baby that was wearing the lady? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, great movies. And uh, I don't know. If uh, if any of you have seen you know any of his earlier films or you know what your first thoughts were after seeing The Lord of the Rings and then finding out that he's like this uh, director of gruesome and gross horror movies, you know, I'd be curious to get your, uh, your thoughts on discovering that for the first time. Yeah. Yeah, I had known it. I think, you know, my dad had maybe mentioned that, you know, he had some of those kind of B, B horror. Are they even B horror movies? Are they more like C horror movies? Oh, they're A-list pictures. I mean, they were filmed <laughs> yeah. by the New Zealand Film Commission. Yeah. They were, they were government-sponsored movies. Um, That's amazing. I want to live in a country where the government sponsors those movies. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but yeah, but I, I had not. I never went back and watched any of those. I did watch, I think, every movie he's directed since Lord of the Rings, including ones that I have not liked so much, like the uh, King Kong remake. Oh, that was disappointing. Ooh. Yeah. Saw it at midnight. <sighs> I wish I was sleeping instead. Well, it's a long one too, right? Like, yeah. Um, what is the one about the... um? It's not based on a true crime but it's the true crimey one oh and she narrates the uh lovely bones yes the lovely bones so i i still have not seen that i I read the book i liked it it was how was the movie it was okay it's such a bummer concept that it's it was not very enjoyable the the book i thought was good because you're sort of in her head trying to solve the mystery which i thought was really good and it's very like yeah it's, it's it's very sad but as a book i feel like it works well, um, I, as a movie, I, I don't really know, but I've I've read you know a lot of people who agree with you on that. Stanley Tucci is just terrifying in it. Oh, I feel like you don't see yeah. him play a bad guy super often, but oh god. Yeah, I can imagine. I bet he played it pretty well, at least. But yeah, and then uh, the Frighteners, Frighteners. Oh my god. Oh yes. The Frighteners is so good. Like, I think it's my favorite movie of his. No, but it's very good. No, I said my favorite. I didn't say the best. I said it's my favorite. And I'm saying it's not allowed to be. (laughs) You're like, no. Yeah, I'm Team Lord of the Rings. I feel like the Fellowship of the Rings. Specifically Fellowship of the Rings. It's so good. It's so perfect. Yes. As the start of that story, I like the other two, but I think the first one is the best. It was, that was... Uh, that whole series really shaped my childhood growing up. I watched it. Uh, my mom kept me home from school. <laughs> like the Friday came out and went to see it. I had not read any of them. And I immediately went and I read the trilogy before you know the second movie came out. 
we're gonna jump back <laughs> to uh, to heavenly creatures, and I thought it would be interesting just to take a little bit of time since we just discussed all of the true crime aspects of what happened. That just get your your ideas on how the um, perspective of what actually happened versus watching the movie did that um, have much of an impact on your opinions of the film. So I saw this movie for the first time when I was pretty young, to the point where I didn't remember much about it except I remembered that you know it was starring Kate Winslet and. And I remember that it ended with, you know, these two girls beating someone to death who was off screen. And there's like, you know, it's, it's a little bit gory, uh, like a little bit bloody. And then you see them kind of like, I think like running and screaming with the, the bloody clothes on. And that was it. That was all I remembered. I vaguely knew that it was based on a true case and, um, you know, finally dug into it when, you know, doing this research. And kudos to Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh because I think that they put in every effort to make this movie as true to the real case as possible, you know, mostly through using Pauline's diaries, which is, you know, such an amazing resource to have, you know, in terms of, of being able to to tell a, a very true story and yes he did take some liberties I know one thing that I've read is you know I think it might have even been Anne Perry herself who said like I don't know where these clay figures came from <laughs> yeah. but then in contemporary sources you know people have talked about like walking around the the house at Ilum and they saw these like clay figures on the mantle that I guess you know she had made or maybe she and, and Pauline had made so you know he definitely took this like fantasy thing and went with it which clearly that's his passion um you know having this uh fantasy world with these big clay figures it's really amazing to see and you know the visualization of the fourth world you know i think you have a few choices when you're going at this story and you could make it very true to life and just have it be about them just writing and talking about this but the fact that he chose to you know present it like we can see it as the audience i think was very smart and it really made you know the movie i think having that magical kind of aspect and like that beauty you know contrasting with the fact that they're planning and carrying out this murder i think uh is is very interesting i think it's it's a good choice and i think that's a reason that you know this movie has really had a lot of staying power and you know, was so well received is that it's not just a dark story about two teenage girls making an awful, terrible decision. Uh, so I, I think that I think that he's great. I, I can't imagine a better take on this story for sure. What about you? It's interesting because going over the, the true crime aspect of it, I guess I really didn't think about it at the time of it being a, a real account. It just seemed like, I don't know, a fantasy drama that took place in New Zealand when I first saw it. Whenever it hit home video, probably 95, I'm guessing. So the year after it came out in theaters. And then when we watched it for screening for this episode and <laughs> thinking about it from a true crime aspect, I was really surprised with how um, many of the elements of the true story um, were held intact for the movie there was a lot less of the fourth wor world clay figure stuff in the movie than i kind of remembered see that's what stood out to you what stood out to me was just the one scene where the murder happens <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i i really enjoyed it this time watching it with the real life element in mind um, I think it's a beautiful movie. I think it tells the story of Pauline and Juliet in a really like emotional way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, usually people talk about chemistry between actors and it's about, you know, the more romantic relationships. But I think that the friendship between Juliet and Pauline, which Melanie Linsky played Pauline and Kate Winslet played Juliet, it felt so real. <laughs> Um, you know, they really seem to have this genuine affection for one another. And they were both like they were young. They were young and they were quite inexperienced and they just uh, really did an amazing job. It was a feature film debut for both of them. Yeah. So and especially in the case of Melanie Linsky, she was cast two weeks before they started shooting. And uh, I guess Fran Walsh found her at the last minute while taking a look at local high schools for girls who look like Pauline Parker. She looked so much like Pauline Parker. Well, that's the thing for it's, Kate Winslet as yeah. well. They they really did look towards, um, you know, young women who were similar in physical features. Yeah. And it's so lucky. I mean, they've both gone on to have very great careers and, you know, are obviously still working actors. So it's pretty remarkable that you go into a high school and pick a girl like, hey, you look like this murderer from 1950. You want to be in a movie? And yeah, she's, she's been in a ton of some of my favorite movies. Yeah. So uh, I know we haven't seen Girl Boss 
that I think it only lasted one season on Netflix, but I saw that she's in that and um, she's in a lot of television work and movies. We actually, in the last, what, couple years, uh, the Netflix film, I don't feel at home in this world anymore was really good. So if, um, if you guys dig Melanie Linsky or even just like as a, a woman who has had it kind of uh, a yeah. uh, movie, highly suggest checking that yes. out. She also plays the uh, not so evil stepsister in Ever After. It's such a cute movie. Definitely check it out. If you haven't seen it, if you're into rom-coms, yeah. some of you must be, please. <laughs> yeah. She's in But I'm a Cheerleader. Oh my gosh. That's a great movie too. Yeah. yeah. Really good. And in the upcoming Stephen King Hulu series, Castle Rock. So I don't know who she plays in it, but um, I saw she's listed in a bunch of episodes. Yeah. So, And I guess we'll find out soon because I know how eager you are to watch that. Yeah. It, I think the first three episodes premiere towards the end of the month and this is june so um coming up soon and then yeah, you mentioned kate winslet i mean she has been in so much yes I mean, yeah kate winslet, in, who's yeah. that no. <laughs> yeah oh have you seen titanic chelsea <laughs> have i seen titanic have i seen ta- titanic more than 10 times in theaters yes yes i have <laughs> have you seen sense and sensibility yes of course what about eternal sunshine of the spotless mind it's only my actual favorite movie of all time i might have seen it a few times yeah nice you should sneak references to that film in like i sneak in <laughs> references to freddy krueger i feel like it has less uh i don't know real life opportunities yeah i guess yeah. so it's a mouthful to say the name but yeah great movie yeah the rest of the cast you know the, a lot of them are new zealand actors so i'm sorry if like a lot of them you know we don't don't have their standout roles but if you have a favorite, you know, supporting actor in Heavenly Creatures that don't get quite the shout outs that Kate Winslet and Melanie Linsky have, please let us know. I mean, the actor that played Honora Parker, Sarah Pierce, um, she played Hilda Bianca in two of the three Hobbit movies. And um, yeah, so that's a, it's a great cast. Diana Kent plays Hilda Hume and Clive Merson plays Dr. Henry Hume. So really good cast. I, I, I thought that it was a very um, naturally cast film as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, one thing that I really liked about the movie, you know, more so than even what I could find to read about the case is that he really, and Peter Jackson really seemed to flesh out the family dynamics. So you do get these moments of you know, some real warmth between Pauline and, and her mom and her dad, and more so than what reading about the true story will tell you, because you know, we know that they have a strained relationship. Obviously, <laughs> she ended up killing her mother, but to kind of see these moments you know where they're just being a family i think puts it more into perspective because although she doesn't write about that in her diary they very likely happened i think that it was not all bad speaking of bad or good i have a couple taglines for this movie you want to go through them? oh absolutely all right the first one is the true story of a crime that shocked a nation it's quite generic could put that on every movie that we've talked about on the show <laughs> all right not all angels are innocent I really don't like that one. Yeah, not so good. From a secret world no one could see came a crime no one could believe. I do like that. And I think that even though, you know, it wouldn't be my choice for a tagline of the true story, I think that with the way, you know, their fantasy world is brought to life by Peter Jackson, I think that it it does make sense. I think that it kind of deserves a spot in the tagline. So I like that a lot. That's definitely my favorite. All right, right on. There's some cool stuff, actually, that I thought I'd throw in about, you know, the making of this movie and, and someone that, that had a huge hand in getting this film. The writer, Fran Walsh. She's the one that suggested the idea of making the Parker Hume case into a film to director Peter Jackson. And uh, Walsh has said on numerous occasions that she has had a fascination with this murder since childhood. So one of the top indicators that she's a murderino. Oh, yeah. Yep. It's her hometown murder. Yep. And oh. speaking of her hometown murder, uh, her quote is, I first came across it in the late 60s when I was 10 years old. The Sunday Times devoted two whole pages to the story with a, an accompanying illustration of the two girls. I was struck by the description of the dark and mysterious friendship that existed between them, by the uniqueness of the world the two girls had created for themselves. I guess it captured her imagination early on. Ten, right? Yeah. Oh, it's awesome. One of us. One of us. One of us. Yep. And, uh, you know, Peter Jackson, um, going along with that, he says, Heavenly Creatures is based on a true story. And as such, I felt it important to shoot the movie on locations where the actual events took place. So a little bit of that, um, you know, wanting to be true to life and to be genuine, which it's interesting. I wonder what the cast was thinking at the time, having a majority of them New Zealand crew and probably with a pretty good um, knowledge of this crime shooting in the the locations where a lot of it happened must have been 
quite interesting. Yeah, I think that because he did try to make this story so true to the real events, it almost makes it a little bit more respectful. Like, I can't imagine that the crew would have been down with, you know, a movie where it's it's filmed at all of the real locations and their real houses. But he's like, you know, let's play up the, like, romance and have them be, like, making out all over. Right, that would be yeah. if the movie was made in, like, the late 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. I could see that. Um, so some of these spots, the tea shop where um, Honora Parker ate her last meal, they filmed there. It was knocked down just a few days after they were finished filming. Peter Jackson has also said that when they got to the location where the murder actually happened, the dirt path, that it got really quiet and that the bird stopped singing and it just didn't seem right. So they decided to move a couple of hundred yards down the way and, and film it. Because the ghost was there being like, what you doing? <laughs> yeah. I'm watching you. What are you up to? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they kind of got spooked themselves. So, um, and that then. That is spooky. Yeah. Man. Uh, the other thing that was kind of pulled from real life is that the journal voiceovers in the film and they're from the actual real diary entries that Pauline Parker wrote and the characters in the stories if not necessarily the stories themselves and the make-believe world are also authentic yeah and actually quite a few of the entries from the journal that we read when we were discussing the true crime those same ones were were picked for the movie as well it was a murder that was planned by a couple of teenage girls who didn't know anything and you I think that you can you can tell that and it's it's really um you know pretty disturbing and sad. It is, yeah. And I think that the um fourth world aspects of this film are just so well done. The f- world built of clay and the way the the actors are made up so that their mouths are close it does it doesn't look like someone just wearing some latex they actually look like they're living creatures and this was all done for the most part with practical effects i believe what a digital this was their first project where they did some of the the fading and in and out of reality yeah but all of the acting was performed on camera yeah and it's some of those scenes are remarkable i know the one in the courtyard with where it's like the two of them and everyone else there are these clay figures it's very very visually impressive even now and I'm sure you know, even more so because this is a time before a lot of computer effects they did a really excellent job the one social element that I think just really shows you how things were at the time is just being gay seemed to be such a thing and yeah, almost was... like you were sick yes and Gosh. that's yeah that's why she was brought to the psychiatrist it's it happens in the movie it, it happened in real life and you know I'm very pleased that for the most part as a society we are beyond that happy pride month (laughs) Um, yeah yeah you know but it i think it it is tough and i think that you know maybe it does say something about the relationship between the girls and their parents that this isn't something that they could just talk about right yeah thumbs up on heavenly creatures oh yeah two big thumbs up yes awesome and uh yeah let us know what what you uh you think of the the movie as well on various forms of social media so as we wrap up this episode though just wanted to end with so now give you guys an insight into what we're uh we're being entertained by now and maybe uh check it out these are kind of our recommendations of uh sorts not always true crime based but uh chelsea what's your now playing my now playing is the handmaid's tale Aha, so yes. we just binged the first season and are caught up with the second season gosh in the last week i just started it and couldn't stop watching it it's very intense it is a huge downer but it's also incredibly well done and i think that you know the the resilience showed by many of these characters is is very inspiring and yeah i'm really excited for the next few episodes to come out to see where they're going with season two because i have no clue that's really good yeah what about you what's your now playing well, my now plane is um, well more of a just finished, but uh, it's eleven twenty two sixty three by Stephen King, and it is about a character through a series of strange events finds himself able to travel back in time and devises a plan with a little help to stop the assassination of John F. Kennedy. It's a great time travel novel. Um, I listened to it via audiobook and started it on our drive from Ohio to New Mexico and just finished it. It's a long one. I think the audiobook was like 35, 36 hours, something like that. And I loved it. It's really good. It has a lot of surprises. It has, um, yeah, some, some interesting connections to a little bit of Stephen King's earlier work. And I loved it. That's now playing. Uh, do you have a coming soon? I do. 
Uh, my coming soon is I, Tanya. So it, it is now on Hulu, according to all of the advertisements that popped up while we were watching Handmaid's Tale. And <laughs> also according to uh, Debbie, who posted it in our Facebook group. So I'm pretty excited to watch that one. And uh, who knows, maybe do an episode on it. That might be a fun one. Yeah. Yeah. A little less uh, depressing. Not a murder involved. Just uh, maiming. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, What's your coming soon? My coming soon is more of a halfway through, and that is The Outsider by Stephen King, which is his latest novel that just came out. And I think a lot of you who are into true crime may really dig this. It is about a little boy that is found gruesomely murdered. It is about um, the man that they accuse and then the events which transpire that make it a lot more complicated than it seems. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, I'm I'm excited. I'm going to have to check it out soon because your description last night sold me on it. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm withholding evidence in this description because I don't want to give anything away. But uh, yeah, it's really great. So check that out. Yeah. Well, while we're on uh, our coming soons and talking about recommended viewing and reading, I think now might be a good time to uh, take our little break and hear some movie recommendations from our pod friends. Yes, here we go. Hi, this is Ben from the Mysteries and Urban Legends podcast. Uh, my favorite movie based on crime, on like a true crime, would have to be Boys Don't Cry. Uh, I feel like um, Brandon Tina's story is like a very, very important story that needed to be told. The movie was like really well made. It was told with a lot of class and with a lot of compassion. And it was just, it was a breathtaking movie. And I think it's a very important movie and probably one of the best true crime movies ever made. I'm Alex, and I'm also from the Mysteries and Urban Legends podcast. And my favorite movie based on a true crime is Heavenly Creatures. Um, I really love the story, and it's just a interesting little look at two young girls' lives. So, yeah, I hope you enjoy Based on a True Crime. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Bye. Hi, I'm Olivia. And I'm Tashana. And we are from Something's Not Right. My favorite movie based on a true crime is the 2007 film Zodiac, directed by David Fincher, which is based on the 1986 book of the same name by Robert Gray Smith. And it's about the manhunt for the Zodiac killer in and around the San Francisco Bay Area during the late 60s and early 70s. And he was never caught. My favorite movie that's based on a true crime is Dog Day Afternoon, which was inspired by the 1972 robbery attempt on a Brooklyn bank led by John Wojtovich. Believe it or not, it's a sweet, funny, and sad movie. Collectively, our favorite movie that's based on a true crime is Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Henry is based loosely on crimes committed by serial killers Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole. Hey, I'm Ashley from That's Weird, and my favorite movie based on a true crime has to be Zodiac. I know, I feel like that's kind of common or basic, whatever. I love a good unsolved mystery, and Jake Gyllenhaal is very, very handsome. So to me, it's the perfect movie. Oh, and congrats on your podcast anniversary. That's huge. Thank you to everybody that contributed. It really made our day listening to to all those come through. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Where can our listeners find us, David? You can find us on Instagram at Based on a True Crime. You can find us on, on, what's that other thing? Oh, yeah, Twitter at True Crime Based. You can find us on Facebook, Based on a True Crime podcast. But the most important thing is there, even if you don't like our page, go to our group and join. We will approve you. We have a ton of fun on the Cult of Based on True Crime Facebook group. It's really the best place to interact with us. I think especially since I started my new job, really the only only social media that I have time for anymore is Facebook. So, you know, if I'm not responding right away on Instagram or Twitter, I'm sorry. Uh, please find me on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to jump in with my new job as well. So just find us there. We have a Patreon. We have a bunch of exclusive episodes. We may occasionally accidentally slip references to episodes that you can't listen to on the main feed. And you're going to say, how can I sign up? You guys talked about, oh my God, you did Silence of the Lambs. Yes, we did. We did. We did. What else have we done? We did, uh, we just, oh, we, we did a, Chicago. We did Chicago. We did Fire on the Sky. Yeah, that was our most Alien recent adoptions. one. Yes. And we've got one coming out later this month that is going to be about 
vampires. Yes. Uh, so I think that's going to be a lot of fun. But to listen to that episode, you got to give us at least one dollar. One dollar a month. One that's dollar. all it takes. Yes. Yep. Consider it supporting, you know, these episodes. Yes. Either way, we appreciate your support and for being a listener. I think that's it for social kind of stuff. If you want to see what I'm up to in the art world, please follow me on Instagram at LabCreature. Our podcast theme and supporting music was composed and conducted by Nico Vitisse of We Talk of Dreams. You can find him on Twitter, the handle at We Talk of Dreams, and the website, wetalkofdreams.com. He has a great Instagram as well. As the thunder rumbles in the distance... It's raining here. I wish I could bottle up the smell and send it to all of you because rain outside of a city, it's nice. We had to close our windows and shut our doors. And now we're about to open our windows and open our doors. Yes. Speaking of doors, just remember, death is but a door. And time is but a window. We'll be back. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.